We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, if every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross. A heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide. Through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. At the age of 14, she was one of the youngest American women to ever make the U.S. Olympic team. An accomplished judo black belt, she would be the first American woman to ever get an Olympic medal in that sport. School wasn't for her, so she decided to drop out of high school and pursue her martial arts career. Soon that would lead her into the world of mixed martial arts where she would set it on fire. By 2015, she was 12 and 0. Eight of those 12 fights had ended within the first round. And then came a really bad fight on a really bad night, November 14th, 2015, when Ronda Rousey would face an unknown. Her name was Holly Holm, a preacher's daughter who was an underdog in a fight, and that preacher's daughter knocked out Rhonda early in the second round. And to say it devastated Rhonda, that's a huge understatement. Later, she would look back on that really bad night for her, and she would say these words. She said, honestly, I was sitting there in the corner, and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? I was literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives an expletive about me anymore without this. Think about Ronda Rousey. She's a trailblazer. She's very pretty. She's a professional fitness model. She has prompted thousands upon thousands of young women to pursue their athletic dreams, especially in those areas of male-dominated sports. She's charismatic. She has a huge following in the WWE. Yet, in the end, her identity was wrapped up in one thing. Her security was wrapped up in one thing. And that thing that, was that, that she was the most prominent and dominant female athlete on the planet. You see, her athletic prowess was a good thing, but when it became the ultimate thing, when it became the thing she worshiped, when it became her savior, and it imploded, that's when she imploded. Identity, security, idolatry, such is what we're gonna talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this, when anything becomes the ultimate thing, you're gonna miss out on the one thing. When anything, good or bad, becomes the ultimate the thing, the, the thing you worship, the, the thing you look at with eyes of worship versus eyes of love, the thing that you get your identity or your security from, 
you're going to miss out on the one thing, and that one thing is a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week, week 11 of our series called Jesus is the Subject. It's in this series in which we're pulling apart the book of Mark. Today, we're going to be landing in a very popular story, a story of a conversation between Jesus and a guy called the rich young ruler. Now, that story of the rich young ruler is found in three gospels. It's found in, in Matthew 19 and Luke 18, and I'm stealing some of that information to build into our story today out of Mark 10. We're going to be landing in Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. So turn to Mark 10. Let me set the scene for what's going on. Go back with me 2,000 plus years ago. 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus at the age of 30 goes into the Jordan River. He's baptized, comes out of the water, and he begins a three-year earthly ministry. It's during that time that he does a whole bunch of stuff to show that he is the powerful son of God. Our story picks up today towards the end of that three-year earthly ministry. In fact, shortly after our story today, Jesus is going to be going into Jerusalem on the back of a a foal on the back of a, a donkey. People are going to be screaming and greeting him like he's the coming Messiah, and they're saying things like, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a handful of days later, they're going to nail him to a cross, and they're going to be cheering for his excruciating death. Our story today has three characters. Character number one is Jesus. Jesus is the subject. Jesus is always the subject of our preaching here, otherwise our preaching is in vain. The second character is a guy just known as the rich young ruler. He doesn't have a name, that's how he's known. And third, last but not least, is that motley crew of disciples. Jesus is going to have a conversation with man. Our story picks up Mark 10, verse 17. Remember our main point. When anything becomes the ultimate thing, you're going to miss out on the, the one thing. All right, here we go. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let's talk about this man. We, we don't know much about him. Uh, the other gospel accounts show us that he's a rich, young ruler. Some people have speculated that it's actually Mark before Mark's conversion as a Christ follower. That's speculation. Uh, he's a Jewish man, and we're going to see that within the exchange today with Jesus. He could be a synagogue ruler, a man of power, a man of wealth, a man of influence. Some have speculated that he's a Roman. I don't think he's a Roman because no Roman ruler would throw himself at the feet of a Jewish rabbi. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi or was a Jewish rabbi. Uh, a Roman would only bow his knee to one little g-god, and that's Caesar. So this man comes to Jesus, and he's, he's asking a question. He says, what do I do to inherit eternal life, good teacher? Look at Jesus' first response, verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, here's what Jesus is not saying. Hey, you know what? I'm not good. I'm not perfect. I'm full of sin. You're full of sin. We're all full of sin. Let's high five. He's not saying that at all. Jesus never denies his divinity. Jesus never denies his deity. What he's doing is he's deconstructing what this man considers as good. Also, as a Jewish rabbi, no Jewish rabbi would, be, would allow himself to be called good because he has to remain humble. So Jesus is setting up a Q&A time, a session of questions, questions and answers, a conversation with this man. Now remember, if you ask Jesus a question, be ready for an answer. He says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Here's Jesus' answer, verses 19 and 20. 
Well, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler, he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Jesus hits home six of the Ten Commandments, and all of those commandments are based on one thing, relationship. All of them are based on, on the idea of relationship. Don't steal. Don't kill anybody. Don't sleep around on your, on your spouse. Don't be a schlep. Honor your mom and dad. And the rich young ruler simply says, I've done all these things. I've done, done all these things. I've performed all these things. And that's the issue with the rich young ruler. He's focused on performance. All of his metrics are based on his external actions. Folks, whenever we, we measure ourselves by our external actions, we're going to have a superficial view of sin. When we measure ourselves by our external actions, what we do, we're going to have a superficial view of sin. Jesus would say that what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. It's all about the internal attitude. And, and most world religions believe that your salvation is found through doing stuff. Not so with Christianity. See, in Islam, let's use Islam for an example. If you're a Muslim, you choke on your chicken bone and you die, you stand in front of Allah, and either the, the angel of Allah or Allah himself will weigh your good with your bad. If your good outweighs your bad, good, you're in heaven. If your bad outweighs your good, sucks to be you, you're going to hell. Buddhism and its close cousin, Hinduism, believe in, in things that you do in this life will affect who you are and what you will be in the next, whether it's karma and reincarnation. All those good works add up, or the bad works, add up. Now, I know this is Christianity 101, and many of you already know this, but it's always good to remember that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation is in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not your path is your path, my path is my path. We'll high five on the top of the mountain. And the Apostle Paul would say, it's by grace that we're saved through faith. Not all the stuff we could do because we could boast otherwise. It's by salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. So the rich young ruler says, listen, because he's all about metrics. He's like, listen, I've done all these things. I've always kept the law. And what he doesn't realize is that the law was simply a mirror. A mirror to show us our blemishes on our faces. It couldn't cleanse us. Only Jesus could cleanse us. Jesus is wanting a relationship with this man. And that's why Jesus jolts the exchange initially with no one is good except God. He's trying to jolt him to say, don't you understand? You got, a, mis you got a, a screwed up view of what is good. It's not about your works. Now, Jesus could slam him right here. He could say, you know, I don't know if you're up on current events, but a couple years ago, I came out of the Jordan River and I sat on the side of a hill and I spoke for a couple days. And when I was speaking for a couple of days, he, look it up, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when I was talking, I talked about how if you get angry at someone, you're committing murder in your heart. If you look lustfully at someone, you're committing adultery in your heart. Are you that arrogant to think that these things that you're doing are gonna get you into heaven? But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't say that at all. Look what Jesus, look, what, look what, what happens. Mark 10, verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. He felt a love for him. He saw his, in spite of his imperfections, 
in spite of that internal attitude, that love, that grip that his, his possessions and wealth would have on him. Jesus didn't slap him down. He saw his sacred potential and his internal beauty. And he sees that with you. He sees that with me. It's all about that grace, about that grace, about that grace. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and I would argue that he's not coming to Jesus truly searching for how to inherit eternal life. Some people think that. I disagree. I think he's just coming in for a high five from Jesus. Hey, I'm doing all these things. Good rabbi, just show me. Just tell me. Just give me an affirmation, a thumbs up. I want a gold star. When I was in middle school, I had to do wood shop, and it scared me because I hate wood shop and tools. Tools and I don't get along. My wife is a master craftsman. She's amazing. She's made all the furniture in our house, or most of it. And, and you know, when, when I come home and I say, honey, what'd you do today? She said, I made the bed. She really made the bed, like with nails and a router and saws. She's got tools. I don't even know what they are. They scare me. And so in middle school, I show up for wood shop. And I got nothing but armpit sweat. And our first thing we got to do is make the infamous what? The cutting board. So it was square and it had a handle that would come out of the middle. So I made my cutting board and the cutting board actually looked like Oklahoma because it had like the pan handle and some jagged edges. So I went up to Mr. Allen. He was my teacher. He was a great guy, World War II vet. I loved this guy. And I said, sir, will you please show me what I can do to get an A on the project? I knew he wasn't going to do the bobble-headed thumbs up. Yeah, it looks great. He grabbed it and he threw it in the trash. <laughs> and he said, start over again, young man. Yes, sir, I will. See, I, I was not searching for affirmation. I wanted change in my life. And whether the man was searching for affirmation or wanting change, the one thing that is true is he had a focus. And that focus was not on a relationship with God. And the beauty about it is that Jesus saw his internal beauty and his sacred potential. He did not smack him down. So Jesus says, okay, let's, let's talk. Let's talk about this. Verses 21 and 22. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus spoke into that internal attitude issue. He was getting his identity and his security from money. You know, money is, is supposed to be something that, that helps us. We can do so much with it. Money is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. Money is a great servant, but a terrible master. And money was the master of this young man. Jesus said that you can't serve both God and money. Well, how do we know that money was a master? Well, if, if you go back to the text, uh, he, it says that at these words, Jesus said you, you need to give away all your junk. At these words, he went away sad, and sad just means boo-hoo. But then he said, and he was grieving. See, grieving's important. That word's very important because that same word is used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is on his knees and, and he's seeing the weight of the world coming down on his shoulder, the sin of the world, past, present, and future, he's grieving. He's torn apart inside. He knew what he had to do and how difficult it was going to be. The rich young man is feeling the same way about giving away his stuff. It's tearing him apart. You see, money was to the rich young ruler what God the Father is to Jesus. So Jesus says, one thing you lack 
And that one thing he lacked was a relationship. That's why he talks about these, these six commandments. They're all based on relationships, and they're all based on the first commandment, which is the ultimate relationship commandment. That first commandment is you will have no gods or idols before me. You see, to the rich young ruler, money was a good thing, but it was also the ultimate thing. And because it was the ultimate thing, it would hinder his relationship with God. All right, so what I want to do is I want to get very practical in today's teaching. I want to press pause on this story. We're going to come back to it. But I want to talk about idolatry, something I've struggled with my whole life. And, and what I want to do is I want us to look at idolatry and some of the idols that we can have in our lives because when we start looking at idols, we think of a bunch of crazy people dancing around a golden calf in the middle of the desert. So idolatry, idolatry is when you look to anything to give you what only God can give you when you look to anything to give you what only God can give you. As I say, whenever I preach here, I'm preaching to myself first. I'm not doing this, you people type thing. I'm preaching to myself. So what I did when I was putting this sermon together, I decided to lay out a, a list of all the different, just make a list of all the different idols I have worshiped or I worship in my life that, is, that have taken me away from God. And I had like two pages worth. And I said, okay, I, I'm not like Pastor Bob. I don't have like 55 minutes to preach. Just kidding. <laughs> He'll talk to me about that. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just going to identify seven. And my seven are Kipster's seven deadly idols. And it's kind of like the seven deadly sins. I'm calling them Kipster's seven deadly idols. Some of them may resonate with you. None of them may. Just check your Facebook. Watch March Madness. You can't cheer for my Jayhawks because we lost ugly last night. Okay, so here we go. Kipster's seven deadly idols. Let me start first with people. I've struggled with worshiping people. And what do I mean by that? I got an awesome wife, been married 30 years this year. I got great kids, great in-law kids, love them dearly. I've got a grandson who is about the most amazing little guy on the planet. But here's the thing, when I get my identity and my security out of my kids or my wife or my grandson, when I look at them through eyes of worship versus eyes of love, I'm out of whack. And the reason why is because people cannot die for your sins, they will always compete with the one who did. So people can become an idol for you in your life. How about this one, pleasurable activities. Uh, for me, it was martial arts. I spent 30 years doing martial arts. I mean, like throwing down hard martial arts, getting in white pajamas or black pajamas and, and rolling around on a mat with a bunch of sweaty men and paying money for it and getting beaten up. I'm whacked. And, and that was my thing. When, when I was in the military, I taught combatives. I wanted to get out of the military, retire from the military, then run my own martial arts school, be a contractor for the Department of Defense, and go teach combatives. That's what I did. The problem is, is that it came, became my identity and my security. In fact, you know, God's, God's kind of funny how he does this. If you have an idol in front of you, he's going to start giving you subtle hints subtle hints on getting rid of that idol, and if you don't pay attention to those hints, he may sometimes rip that idol from you. And you know it's an idol that when he takes the idol away from you, you are destroyed. And so I got sick, and when I got sick, I couldn't do martial arts anymore. And it, it threw me for a loop for a while. You see, the pleasurable activity, whether it's martial arts, the pleasurable activity, golf, video games, name it, whatever it is, it can be a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing, nefarious activities, addictions. These things become our idols, and we gotta remember that none of those activities can save us, can die for our sins. And they will always compete with the one who did. What about our jobs? 
For me, the, the profession of being an American soldier, I loved that. I, I loved being a soldier. I loved uh, serving my country. I loved leading big units and doing stuff, stuff that causes adrenaline. I had a blast doing that. I really enjoyed it. It, it became an issue when it became my identity and my security. And the same thing happened to me when I rolled into ministry about 12 years ago. Being a pastor, you get those titles, and then you want that bigger church, and you get focused and focused and focused, and you become a workaholic. And it can happen with any of us, whatever the job may be. We, God wired us to work, and we should love our work, but it can go overboard. Timothy Keller once, I, I stole a bunch of this material on idolatry from Timothy Keller. I shamelessly stole it, so not all of it's mine. Um, but, but Timothy Keller once said, here in America, we are pr uh, practicing a form of child sacrifice. And that child sacrifice is taking our kids and sacrificing them at the altar of our office, at the altar of our cubicles, as we focus on being workaholics. You see, your job can't die for you. Your job can't pay the price for your sins. It will always compete with the one who did. So let's look at possessions. We're talking about that today. The rich young ruler, I mean, he's all about possessions, his wealth. He wants to take that with him into heaven. And we can be the same way. Uh, for, for me, it's like I want that specific house. I'll have that status if, if I have that specific house. Or those things, uh, 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 money, our, our savings accounts to where it's like if, if those things are taken away, I'm gonna be destroyed. And I get my identity and my security out of possession. See, your possessions can't die for you. They will always compete they will always compete with the one who did. How about this one? This is gonna, this will probably get me an email. Um, politicians. Let's just go back to 2016. I love politics. You know, I got my, uh, my, uh, my undergrad and master's degree in, in international relations and, and just I love politics. I love uh, reading about it. And 2016 was a bloody campaign. Wasn't the bloodiest we've had in American history, but it was pretty darn close to it. But here's the thing, 2016, you've got St. Donald, you've got St. Hillary, and somewhere you've got St. Bernie in there also. And what happened is so many of us looked at those politicians, no matter which side of the aisle or where they landed, as the savior for our country. In the words of Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to politics. Nothing new under the sun. And what happens is we choose a candidate and then we vilify others. We look down on them, we demonize them, and then we're self-righteous about ourselves. You see, a politician cannot die for your sins, and he or she will always compete with the one who did. Okay, how about, uh, this one's kind of a weird one, but it's something I've struggled with, so again, you guys are my counseling session, you're my therapists, so I'm just gonna throw this one out. Reputation, you know, I, I've always wanted to have a reputation of being a man of character, honor, and integrity, but what I found was early on, especially when social media came out, I was crafting a persona on social media as, as a pastor, 2007, I started writing this daily devotional thing. It started going out to just like 12 dudes in a Bible study, and then I started sharing it and uh, started putting it on Facebook and then uh, had a sign-up list, so it goes out to quite a few people now. And, and back then, I was all about the applause of man because what would happen is I'd, I'd publish my devotional and I'd get all those shares and all those thumbs up. I'm counting the likes. I'm like, wow, 75 likes, man. Look at that. I got 18 shares, whatever. And then I'd get that angry emoji, and somebody writes something underneath it, and it would crush me because I was getting my identity and my security out of this persona that I was making on Facebook. 
And it doesn't matter who you are, we all can be guilty of that. In preparation of this sermon, I was, I was doing some reading about people who have a problem with these sorts of things like me, and, and one was a young lady, and she's sitting with her therapist, and, and the therapist said, you are addicted to social media. You need to get rid of your social media and take a step back. And she said, I can't do that, because if my social media ceases to exist, so do I. A young man wrote about how his parents put him through college, and because his parents put him through college, uh, he wanted to make sure they knew that he was successful. So his social media was all about his success. It was all about his reputation. He was getting his identity and security from that. Let's try another one. What about uh, selfless causes or, or, or really good social causes? Those are great things, to have those causes that we throw ourselves into. But just like politics, when we start uh, using these ideas as idols, when we start looking down at others who don't believe the same thing we do, we vilify them and we look at them in a pompous and self-righteous way. See, none of those things can die for your sins. They'll always compete with the one who did. No idol can die for your sins. It will always compete with the one who did. Remember idolatry. Idolatry is all about when anything becomes, or when, uh, when we look to anything to give us only what God can give us. And when any of those things, good or bad, become the ultimate thing, we're gonna miss out on the one thing. So how do we get rid of them? How do we get rid of these idols? How do we demolish them or put them in the proper position in our lives that they should be? Four ways, four ways. Briefly, let's go through that. It's search, surrender, deconstruct, reconstruct. Search, surrender, deconstruct, reconstruct. Let's talk about searching first. The psalmist David, he goes to God and says, search me, God, Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Look at all the junk in me. See what, what junk is there. Guide me down the right path. That's the Kipster International Version soon to be published. And so we're supposed to be like David. We're supposed to open our hands and we search. We say, God, show me. Show me where my devotion is out of whack. And here's what's so beautiful about God. Through prayer, through circumstances, uh, through scripture, through good friends who are godly, who are, aren't afraid to tell you that you got chive in your teeth, that your fly's open, you got a booger hanging out of your nose. The people who will tell you in, in truth and love, okay, that that's going on. God will use them to show you uh, that you've got this idol in your life. And when he shows you, then you surrender it. You simply say, Jesus, I've placed this person or this thing in front of you, and I wanna drop that at your feet. Thank you for your forgiveness. And now guide me as I deconstruct this thing. Deconstruction's tough. It's where you really have to work. On deconstruction, what you're doing is you're looking at your heart tie. You know, where is my overdevotion unhealthy? If it's a person, where am I getting my identity? Where am I getting my security from this person? Where am I looking at this person with eyes of worship? This child with eyes of worship instead of eyes of love. If it's a thing, if it's a good thing, maybe it's a job. Maybe it's time to set up some boundaries and you gotta think about how to do that. If it's a bad thing, you need to kill it with extreme prejudice. And then, as you're deconstructing, reconstruction can occur at the same time. Reconstruction's all about becoming a disciple of Jesus. It's about learning the character of Jesus and then emulating that in your life. So, 
the Apostle Paul would write that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And as you emulate those things and you try to do those things in your life and you keep going back and searching and surrendering and deconstructing and reconstructing, it's a lifelong process and you consistently put Jesus at the front. So go back to our story. Back in our story, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and he gives us the example. He knows that the rich young ruler has idols, a specific idol, his possessions. So Jesus says, okay, you wanna deconstruct? Here's how we deconstruct. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus is saying, you wanna be rich? Give your money away. You want power? Go serve. You want a reputation? Deny yourself. You wanna truly have a fulfilled life? Pick up your cross and follow me. Folks, what is the thing that has become the ultimate thing in your life that is keeping you from that relationship with Jesus. Verses 23 and 24, back to our story. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Okay, here's what Jesus is not saying. If you're rich, you're going to hell. He's not saying that at all. In fact, we've got plenty of examples in the Old Testament and New Testament of rich, righteous people who did great things and who are heroes in Scripture. If you look at Abraham, Job, uh, David, rich men who did great things. Fast forward to the New Testament. We've got some rich people. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That was a family that had some kaching. Philemon, a friend of, of Paul. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus, I would argue, was a rich man. See, He's not saying that all rich people are bad because if that's true, all poor people would be good and we know that that's not true either. What he's saying is that money has a particular power in our lives to get a grip on our hearts and to blind us to the sin that's in our lives. So the, the text says the disciples were amazed. Of course they were amazed. At that time, if you were like the rich young ruler, that meant God's hand was on you. You're rich, you're Jewish, you're doing the right things. Therefore, you are blessed by God. And the poor, well, they weren't blessed by God. And so Jesus is flipping it all on their heads. A guy by the name of Andrew Walls is a, a Christian historian. And he once talked about how, how money, or Jesus always migrated away from money, power, and wealth. In fact, he would say to this day that Christianity is a nomadic religion. Its epicenter doesn't remain in one place. It always goes to, and flocks away from power and money and wealth. And so if you look at some of the other world religions out there, let's look at Islam. Go back to Islam. Islam starts out in the Middle East and it spreads around the world. In fact, studies show that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Its epicenter, though, remains in the Middle East. Its headquarters, if you will, remains in the Middle East. Look at Hinduism. Hinduism starts in India. It spreads around the world, but its epicenter remains in the Far East. Uh, Buddhism starts in Southeast Asia. It moves around the world, but its headquarters, its base, its main base remains in the East. But not so with Christianity. Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he's got, what, 120 to 150 followers. But through the power of the Holy Spirit and a bunch of just broken people, 
it spreads like wildfire, wildfire from a, a center of power and wealth, Jerusalem, to Samaria, to, to Europe, Eurasia, Africa, to hashtag Merca, to across the ocean to Asia, and it's still moving. In fact, do you know the, the, the largest growth in Christianity today is in Central America and the poorest parts of Africa. Jesus is always flocking from power and wealth to brokenness. And I think he does it for a reason. Because when you have power and wealth, when you're rich, it's not a sin, but it's really easy to lose the message of the cross, the radical message of sin and the grace of God. And what happens is we can make a safe religion for us good people and we'll lose what the cross is about. Jesus was always about the cross. The cross is about delving out resources. It's about sacrifice. It's about giving up power. It's about serving. The disciples were amazed because Jesus was flipping everything they believed on their heads. They were totally amazed. Verses 24 and 25. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so Jesus is getting really direct with them. He's only a handful of years older than these disciples. And he's saying, kids, kids, come on. You're not getting this. Don't you understand that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? And that camel through the eye of a needle, they'd understand that. Because in Jerusalem, you got these walls going all around the city. And there were really wide gates, and there's really narrow gates. Remember, Jesus would say, enter through the narrow gate. Those narrow gates were, were like tall, and at the top, they had this big round hole in them. So they looked like a needle. Now, you could get a camel through that. The camel would come up. You'd have to unpack the camel. You'd have to bust and bust and bust. It would get through. It wouldn't be impossible, but you could do it. But it's hard. Also, some of them spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, the word for camel and the word for twine sound the same. So you could get that twine through a needle if you sucked on it and got a little point and got it through there. It's not impossible, but it's tough. So Jesus is not saying that being rich is a sin. It's not that at all. We can alleviate so much suffering with money. He's saying that money has a particular power to blind us to the sin in our lives and to be an idol. Look what happens next, verses 26 and 27. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. They're saying, if, if the best of the best can't be saved, then who can? You see, they were all about their works. They were all about their performance and doing things. When you get so focused on your performance and doing things, you become self-sufficient. In fact, self-sufficiency was their greatest deficiency. Self-sufficiency was their greatest deficiency. They were about performance, and they were forgetting that it's all about that grace, about that grace, about that grace, because the grace of Jesus gets us through the eye of a needle no matter how jacked up we are, no matter how broken we are, no matter who we are, rich, poor, black, white, gay, straight, it doesn't matter. Jesus meets you in your mess, and he says, come, drop your stuff, pick up your cross and follow me, because it's gonna be a wild ride. It's gonna be tough, but you're gonna make it through the eye of that needle. Let me wrap this up. Verses 29 through 31. 
Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Look at this list. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first, rich young ruler, will be last. And the last, my motley crew of disciples, will be first. Look what he lists out there. Houses, people, possessions, a profession, having a farm, that means you're going to be a farmer. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to lay down their importance in our lives, not to necessarily get rid of them, but to lay down their importance in our lives and put him as first to where we have a God-centered servant heart. And we do that through searching, surrendering, deconstructing, and reconstructing. It's all about the heart. Folks, what has hold of your heart And as I close today, what I want to do is I want to give us a challenge. And the challenge is a tough one. It's one that's going to require you to take some time to think through. And the challenge is this. Ask yourself, in whom or what do I place my ultimate trust? In whom or what do you place your ultimate trust? From where do you get your security? Or in whom do you get your security? In whom or what do you get your identity? Where do you spend the majority of your time, your treasure, your talent? Search, search your heart, ask God to show you, and he will. No matter what, don't leave unchanged. Skagit, I love you guys. I'm gonna turn you over to Pastor Brian. Thank you for all you guys are doing in our church family. Boca Raton, those of you watching us online, thanks again for joining us today. Here in Bellingham, we're gonna stand and close with this song. On the center screen, we're gonna have this challenge. And I want you to focus on this challenge as well as you see the words that are playing. Who or what is the king of your heart? Let's stand and then I'll come up and close this.